Last year in Los Angeles, a nine-month-long immersive story brought participants inside a world of shadowy cults and secret societies. Combining immersive theater, haunted houses, and alternate reality gaming, the tension experience made each player the real-life star of their own personal movie, and who they met and what they did determined what would happen next. This is Brian Bishop, senior reporter with The Verge, and at this year's South by Southwest conference, I joined the show's creators for a conversation about immersive entertainment and how shows like The Tension Experience may be shaping the future of storytelling. All right, uh, hey everybody, thanks for joining us today, and thanks for coming out to uh, Horror's Immersive Future, The Tension Experience. My name is Brian Bishop, I'm a senior reporter at The Verge, uh, and I'm really excited to be part of this panel today as part of the experiential storytelling track here at South by Southwest. Uh, you know, for decades now, we've been watching mediums like film and television that basically go one way. A creator makes something, they send it out to an audience, and that's kind of it. But over the last few years, we're really seeing that dynamic change with mediums that let people kind of become an active participant in stories and change the way it flows. Um, we're seeing it in virtual reality, we're seeing it in immersive theater, we're seeing it in theme parks. Uh, and last year, I covered a show that I thought really took that idea of immersive entertainment and stepped everything up a level. Uh, across you know, nine months, multiple platforms, uh, these people kind of made their own mini Westworld in downtown Los Angeles. So I'm very excited to introduce you guys to the creators of the Tension Experiment, experience rather. Uh, right here, director Darren Bowsman, actor Sabrina Kern, writer Clint Sears, and producer Gordon Bijelanik. And to get started, I just had a couple questions. I was wondering, how many people here have actually tried an immersive theater piece before? Sleep No More, Delusion? Okay, and how many people here have been to a haunted house? Okay, and how many people have played an alternate reality game? Okay, this, uh, you, guys are, you guys are coming at the right panel. Um, so, tension was all of those things and more, and it's kind of hard to describe. So, uh, Darren, I guess first question to you is, you guys made something really, really insane. How would you describe it? I, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> we, uh, we, it's this awkward thing that when you first try to tell someone about it for the first time, you're met with blank stares. Uh, I remember sitting down with my mom trying to explain to her, and it, I think she fell asleep because it's just so. It's uh, it's all of those things. It's it's part theater. It's part haunted house. It's it's part therapy session. And I think that um, it started much smaller than it became. It started as an ARG. Uh, I uh, I contacted Gordon uh, with a script, uh, a movie script. I'm a director. Uh, features, and originally I had a movie called Tension that I sent Gordon. And it was based in immersive theater, which I was a huge fan of. I'm a huge fan of Sleep No More, and then she fell. And so I wrote a, a script based on the immersive theater world, and Gordon read it, and then I said, I want to do this and actually create one in Los Angeles. Not the movie, but the actual world. I want to create a living, breathing... Westworld's a great example. It's like a Westworld, a place that you can go to and interact with all the actors, call them, hang out with them, know their email addresses, and you are a central part of the story. And so within six months, it became everything. It became a, an online game, it became a haunted house, it became an immersive theater, and it became a therapy office for some. Yeah, um, and people that went through, like myself, it was very intense and traumatic. Um, but I want to give uh, you guys a real kind of visceral sense of what that could be. So uh, we have a video clip, Darren. Do you want to play that? Yeah, do you think the trailer, or do you think the beginning of the doc is uh, the best? Beginning of the doc. Okay, um, so there'll be a documentary that we're putting out, uh, a short doc, uh, next week on our website, thetensionexperience.com. I'll kind of start it for you. We can watch a few minutes of it, and it kind of sets it up a little bit about what it is. So if you guys are ready. Can you put it up? <coughs> 
I still can't figure out how to describe the tension experience to people. It, it was like a smack in the face to me. It was just a roller coaster ride for your brain. A thunderbolt that just hits you in the middle of your life. It was intriguing, it was something new. I found myself doing things I never thought I'd be doing. Did that really happen? Did, did I really do that? Tension experience totally changed my life. I don't think any of our lives will ever be the same. Not after this. Um, so again, if you guys look, uh, next week on The Tension Experience, you can watch the full documentary, and it kind of goes behind the scenes and, and shows you in a better, better than I can probably describe what it actually is. Oh my God, turn off your phone, Darren. <laughs> Jeez. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is what um, so the all. crazy thing is all that footage, that was actually people in the community, that was uh, participants going through the show, that was normal humans doing those things, going through those experiences. Uh, they weren't all normal, I mean, <laughs> let's, let's be honest. Uh, like, fair enough. I mean, here's a perfect example of, of one small clip that you saw in there, uh, a guy strangling someone. That was a participant, did, had no idea what he was about to do. One of the things that's cool about the tension experience, I think, is that you never knew what was going to happen from phone call to phone call to minute to minute. Uh, one of our participants named Buzz received a phone call to arrive at a location at a specific time in the middle of the night. He didn't know where he was going. He drove to this location where he was hooded and thrown in the back of a van. He was driven to a warehouse where he had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And at that point, we then told him that he was going to kill someone on camera. And we walked him through how to do it safely. And he had, again, no idea what was happening. And, and, and the reason why this existed was because Buzz, as a player, started up a story beat on his own, just interacting with the game. And we said, you know what? That's a good story beat. Can we actually execute that? And we did it safely. Buzz, the participant of the ARG, uh, had an had a adversarial relationship with one of our characters. And it turned into uh, a time-consuming uh, storyline on the message board where he was literally insulting one of the characters. So we allowed him to kill the character uh, on a periscope where thousands of people watched it. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's probably a good, uh, a good point to segue into the alternate reality game section of this and just ask um, at the top, what was the, the premise you guys were working with from the very beginning of what the ARG was going to be and, and how did you develop it? You want to take, sure. Uh, Darren always had the idea and I think uh, the beat outline from the beginning was a cult and that's an easy way to get people involved and the mysticism and the allure of basically enlightenment. And so we came off really, really soft and mysterious, and that was the beat. Um, and slowly, we started to unreveal uh, the sinister uh, elements behind the cult. And the entire story became, what exactly is the OOA? And each time you found an answer, of course, there were three more questions, just like a good TV show. You always answer one question, then give them you know, three more. I think that was hard when we came out as the ARG. None of us put ourselves in front of it. I think it was very important, uh, for myself at least, to not be, I didn't want it to be, oh, it's the guy who made the Saw movies. I didn't want my name associated with it. And so it was a, it was a hard thing trying to hide that for as long as we did. You're in the day where no one can hide anything anymore. Uh, and so for about four months, um, no one knew who was behind it. They speculated, but we never, we would never answer the speculations, including the actors. A lot of times, uh, some of the day player actors never talked to me. They got burner cell phones sent to them in an Uber, and their money would be in an envelope under a bus bench, and we would tell them what to do, and that was it. And I mean, Sabrina, why don't you talk about our first encounter meeting? Yeah, that was very interesting. Um, I got 
a phone call one day and um, this mysterious man was on the other end of the phone call and said, uh, my name is um, Ellis Gordon. <laughs> and he's, he talked about Sleep No More and if I liked Sleep No More or not. And if I was, I love Sleep No More. I was all about it. So when I heard that it was something like that, I was on board. But so this Ellis Gordon guy, who turned out to be Darren Bowsman, he um, said, I can't tell you anything about this. I have to sign, I, you have to sign an NDA right now. I'll send it to you via email and then send it back and then I'll call you back. And I was having kind of a rough day with immigration lawyers and whatnot because I'm from Switzerland. And so I was like, oh, what's gonna happen? I'll go sign this right away and send it back and I did. And then I got a FaceTime phone call from Darren Bowsman saying, my name is actually Darren Bowsman. I've, uh, you can look me up on IMDb is what he said. I was like, <laughs> that makes me sound okay. a lot douchier than I am. <laughs> and the funny thing is too, behind him were like these huge saw posters. <laughs> I, I got it, I got it. Uh, um, and I so am pretty the, douchey, that was. But then the first time I actually met him was in a, in a park. <laughs> and we were, that was the first event that we did, I think, right? Yeah. Well, we took pictures with my with my fake parents is what we did for the first time I actually physically saw you. Even to this day, a lot of the actors in the ARG never knew who we were. I mean, no. um, it, it was uh, it, the cloak and dagger was was insane and hard to keep up with. We had any time four or five burner cell phones that with different names on them. So if one rang, they knew I knew it was under Ellis Gordon. If another one rang, it was another name that we had trying to keep the secrecy as long as we possibly could. Because I think once you came out that it was Darren Bowsman and Clint Sears and Gordon Bijelanic, it stops being cool, it stops being mysterious, and it's, oh, it's these three guys who have done these things. So we wanted it for as long as we could hold it out. No one knew who was behind it. And what was it like? I mean, Gordon, they're doing this, the immersive theater show is the, eventually going to be the end goal of this, but the ARG is happening. Just from a business perspective, I'm curious, what did you think about, you know, mounting this thing? There's not a ton of great business models for immersive theater necessarily Well, well for me, what I got seduced by was when he first sent me the script was the actual material. And it was about four friends that get together on Halloween night and they're participating in this immersive theatrical experience. And just a high-level heist going on, and I was like, wow, this is a great material, but like, I just don't believe this world. I don't know anything about this world. So I reached back out to Darren, and I said, can we talk about this script? He goes, yeah, you wrote this great heist movie in this world that I don't know anything about. And so when we met, he kind of like filled up my head with blackout, delusion, alone, sleep no more. And I was like, holy shit, this really does exist. And so what's been a subculture for a long time, what I think what we've done with Tension, we kind of took it almost mainstream. What I liked about it was as a filmmaker, and I've been producing movies for 20 years, it's a different form of IP. We're still creating, there's a storyline, there's a narrative, but it's unlike an act one, two, and three. What I liked about it was the never-ending narrative, the continuation of the story. So when you finish the experience, it's kind of not over. And, and what we've done with, with the tension experience, what was great about it was if you came back, we came the first time, it was one experience. You came back a second time, it was a second experience. You came back a third time, it was a third. You would have to come back eight times before you actually had the same experience. So, and that's because these two got knuckleheads, sorry. But the way they, they wrote the script and the actors, so if you showed up, and if you were, for example, Sleep No More is brilliant, it's great. 
but it's passive. You walk in there, you're watching this show, you're following your actors. With us, we were completely active. The less you spoke, the more you got, the less you got out of it. The more you spoke, the more inquisitive you were, the more questions. It was part escape room, part immersive, part haunt. And so there were certain characters that would only unlock based on the participants' questions and answers. And so what we did was when, and we would limit 15 people per show. You could not do this if you were hurting people through like cattle. We weren't hurting them through five, 600 people a night. We were doing six shows a night, no more than 15 people. One of the things that we did was all the data mining. We got everyone's social media digital footprint and we knew things about them. So when we came in, we made it personal. We, it was really kind of like Michael Douglas in the game. And so if you came back a second time, we made sure you had a second experience. You came back a third time, it was a different there experience. Was, and I think it's important to note, they're completely different scripts. So Clint, I think in the very end, the script for Ascension was 400 pages. Six, 600, was it? It was, it was 400 for Ascension, and it was 200 oh, yeah, for yeah, the yeah, yeah. ARG. But here's an example. I just looked at the audience. This is crazy. One of the actors from Ascension is here that I didn't know was going to be here, Teresa. And I'm going to tell a story about your character. So um, she was a processing agent in the, in the show. And what that meant was she would, you would come in, and she would ask you very inappropriate questions. And the, the idea was to get under your skin. And there was five processing ladies, and the questions would range anywhere from what hand do you masturbate with to, uh, I mean, and they, some of them got really emotional and like really horrible. But if you made a connection with her character, if you, if you were able to make a connection with her character, she had a side story. She would pull you out of the room and take you into a hallway and give you a whole other piece of the puzzle that no one else there got. But you had to know how to make that connection with her to get that to happen. Every one of the 60-some characters had those side stories. And some of them had A, B, or C side stories, depending on how you were. If you were drunk, if we knew that you were drinking, they would, it would activate this side story. If we thought you were really shy and bashful, it would activate this side story. And, and, an example, every night, Sabrina would pick out, I'm going to tell, this is my favorite. I, I Sabrina would pick out who we thought to be the most bashful person in the group. And there was a moment in uh, the experience where you're told to strip off all your clothes. And the idea with it was, I didn't want anyone going in with any sort of thing that made them individuals. Uh, I wanted everyone to be on the exact same playing field, so everyone wore the same white jumpsuit. And so, very early on in the experience, you're brought into a room where the entire group of 15 people are told, take off your clothes now. And they throw these... They can uh, leave underwear on. They can leave the underwear on, but they're told to put these jumpsuits on, and it happens so quickly, and it's abrasive, and you can't even think about what's happening. You're being yelled at. It puts you in the moment, and that's it, what it's and you designed to, to do, yeah. And what it does is it strips away anything that makes you unique. Once a night, or once per hour, Sabrina would find the most bashful one, and she'd pull them out, and she would say, I am so sorry, this is so embarrassing. You're better than that, you're better than them, so I, you should not have to change in front of all those people. And then she'd pull them in a side room and stare at them and say, now take off all your clothes. <laughs> and and, and then, all your clothes and then in my And she case. would not let them take their underwear. She would have to remove underwear. And so she would not, the, the storyline would not continue until you did this. And so there were A, B, or Cs. If someone didn't do it, there was an A plan, a B plan, and C Brian, plan. Brian, did I take you in that room or not? <laughs> uh, no. I, I, I did not sure, do that, sure. yeah. <laughs> 
And the important thing was that no matter what happened, wherever you thought the path was supposed to go, we upended your expectations. That was the golden rule, I think, for everything. And, and again, we have a beautiful girl like this. She takes you aside, and we're upending expectations all of a sudden. Well, everyone wore earpieces, and I think one of the things which made this exciting was it was constantly shifting art. And that, the thing that made me so excited is it was never the same story twice. So let's say Brian, for example. Brian came through three or four times, attention. And so when we would see his name on the list, he would be flagged. And so people on earpieces would be there and be like, listen, Brian's coming through. And we already had built-in information that we'd collected on Brian Bishop prior to that. So we began to tailor the experience real time to him at that exact moment. And uh, it's crazy. And I think the, uh, I talked about it being a therapy session. The, the more you went through, the more connections you had. I mean, if you get, if, if Sabrina Curran says, take your clothes off, and she's staring at you in the eyes, the next time you come through and you see her, you already have this weird connection that you don't have in traditional things. And so the, your storyline with her picks up there, but your friend's storyline, they never met Sabrina there, so their storyline goes in a completely different direction. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> going back multiple times, it was very, very interesting because it did feel like it was this world that persisted when you, you know, weren't in this warehouse. Um, but I'm gonna go back to the ARG too, because that's when you guys first started doing these pop-up events with people. There was an online component, but you were having one-on-one -on -one events. Sabrina, that's when you first started talking to people. Uh, I'm curious for you, when you, first started doing, you know, this real theater one-on-one -on -one scenes with people, they don't know that this is a thing. They just know that they might be getting recruited for a cult. What was that for you like the first time? Uh, it was, was, the, can I answer that one? <laughs> when, when we started off as the ARG and uh, Darren wanted to do these message boards and I'm like, who the hell uses message boards? Like, this is like so old and archaic. He's like, no, no, trust me. So the whole part of the narrative was he took an existing story that was actually true back in the 70s about a girl who came out to Los Angeles to be an actress who was seduced into this cult type of like a Scientologist type of cult. And what happened was when we kind of launched, we launched a fictional cult. We had actual cults reach out to us when we were treading that water, that borderline between are you part immersive haunt, are you a real cult? And so, like we were getting death threats on our Facebook website yeah. by a, some, F and some, FBI being contacted. Yeah, so we, us. so so it kind of, we were crossing the line because it made it. It was so real to a lot of people that they thought we were starting some sort of satanic cult. And so the guy was lashing out against us on our Facebook page and making full-on death threats on a wide-open Facebook. But when you looked at the guy's page. Normal guy somewhere in New Orleans, Louisiana, making these blatant death threats. And we just said, well, wait a minute. Darren's like, we got to do something about this. So we, uh, we went to the local police, and they said, well, you need to call the FBI. And so it was that blurred vision between fantasy and reality at that point. I don't think Sabrina should talk, because it was scary. We put Sabrina in some of the most, I think, looking back on it now, there was always, we always had LAPD there. There was always an off-duty police officer. There was always people that surrounded her, and everything was videotaped, and there was hidden cameras everywhere. But there was some rough things that, I mean, that you were put into. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, it was weird to meet up. I would meet up with, you know, strange middle-aged men in, in parks in the middle of the day Covered or in, blood. in warehouses. Yeah, but talk about the experience, Sabrina. You. Everyone that came in was vetted, though. We, that's part of the, we had background checks yeah, it was always, and they and, were and vetted. Darren was always creeping in his car very close. Um, so he was always there making sure I wouldn't get killed. But um, <laughs> that being said, he, he always, right before, right before me meeting up with someone, he's like, Sabrina, watch out. That guy knows what human flesh tastes like. 
I'm like, okay, good. So I felt very safe. The everyone, that, everyone that came through the experience, we ran back, not background checks. We basically did a, a huge process to make sure, to vet them out and make sure they were okay. And it was it, part of the narrative to it, it join was, the cult, and it was uh, dangerous questions that made you feel uncomfortable. But on the back end, that let us be able to investigate their background. And, and we sure. would, there would be people that we would flag and say, you can't continue yeah. on. Um, if they, if we couldn't find their social media presence, they were not allowed forward. We had to be able to know and be able to track them back. And there was a handful of people that right off the front of the ARG, we just Red cut flag. them and said, you, you can't continue but, on on this. But most of them were, we have to, like, the actual players at the end of the day were really, really respectful because a lot of things happened that maybe shouldn't have happened, like little glitches where I would do a lot of Periscope videos where you would always turn off, switch off the location so they wouldn't know where you're at. Um, and so I once did one from my house, like in the backyard, and for some reason it didn't switch off the location on the one that I did from my house, of course. And so um, my, minutes later, it was all over. They thought it was part of the game. They thought they had to find me now. So they printed out missing person signs with my face on it and my character's name, like missing Addison. She's like part of a cult. <laughs> and they were on their way to my neighborhood to put them to put them out, and then Darren just emailed, like, as a character, you emailed them, like, out of game, and they yeah. immediately stopped. So. And that's, that's a great point for the learning curve of this. I mean, this was new to us all, and so every, every second there was a possibility that something could be thrown at us that we just weren't prepared for, yeah. and we had to narratively make it make sense along the way. And Clint, I'm actually really curious, because you're a screenwriter first, but yeah. here you're working on this basically real-time, long-form storytelling. Well, when Darren approached me, and he's like, you know, endless narrative and blah, 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 it just sounded like the worst fucking idea I'd ever heard my mind to work for. But as soon as I realized the freedom that was going to be allowed and the fact that we could make it a TV show or your favorite movie that you're involved in and that you're, you are the character in your TV show... And all of a sudden, you start realizing, again, expectations. And the f he, he gave me, like, the first one is free, like a drug dealer, you know? He's like, let's just do one, let's just do one. And I saw the look on the people's faces interacting in real time with characters that they believed were real, that, I, that we had created, and it was just so addicting that I was like, okay, well, now they're involved, I really want to really mess with them more. And it goes back to Darren and I being kids and prank calls, and we just, we would get so damn giddy every time. We knew we had a good idea, when we'd laugh to each other and say, can we do that? And then we, <laughs> we'd laugh about the absurdity of it. But <laughs> it was basically once I realized that we could treat it like uh, any traditional narrative, and it was the audience expectations that I keep saying I think that, the, but, the yeah. thing that's important to know about this and what made, I think, tension somewhat unique to other ones, the, the audience controlled everything. And I think Clint and I had an outline of what we wanted to do. But constantly, as Clint was saying, the audience, like people like Brian Bishop, were, yeah. were one step ahead of us. And so in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock in the morning, oh, I horrible. call Clint and I'd be like, we, need, we can't do the scene tomorrow. We have to completely They've change. figured out every step that we're going to so go. So we would literally shift it. And there were a couple of times that we had characters that we created that the audience hated. They, that literally they hated. And they were written off and killed real time. Like we're like, they hate this person. Yeah. We're about to lose them. Kill them now. And we'd stage elaborate death scenes with these characters. And so the audience, like, it was no sleep for six months of this ARG. just rushing yeah. to keep up with the audience. And it's a, it's a rush, and uh, it's frustrating, and it's exciting, but it's just, you get addicted to the fact that you can shape and change this world at any time, and the world itself is living and breathing and can change at any time. I've, 
I, I really can't relate it to anything else I could possibly well, think of. The, I think one of the, for me, the coolest moments of the ARG, and just shows you just how insane it got at times, is uh, the, the message board, which was a very important component to this. I wanted a place where I could view what everyone was doing in real time. And we had a bunch of tools at our disposal. We had call spoofers. So for example, I could call, I could call a participant from their mother's number, and they would pick up thinking it was their mom, and it would be us. I could email from false email addresses. It was, if you've seen the game, it, it was very much like that. But we found out that the players were having a party. Uh, it was like on a Saturday afternoon, and they were having a party. And like all of the main players are going to be there. And so we said, let's crash their party. And so we got Sabrina, we got an Uber, and we drove to the place, and Sabrina crashed their party that they had no idea, and we made one of them get in the van with us. And, we, and they she, had to choose as the party yes. who, because everybody wants to be involved, and that's the built-in attraction to it, is everyone is fighting for each other to be involved, create the story, so that was part of the fun, is like, you as a party get to choose, and you all have to decide who's getting in that car to create this experience, and that is automatically tension at their own party, which was fun for us. What so I like here they the, are gr grilling out having beers, yeah. and seriously, the lead actress of the entire TV show shows up and says, you guys have 60 seconds, one of you's coming in the van with us, and I'm waiting, you have 60 seconds or I leave. And just you see the panic hit their faces, and they, they start all fighting. start arguing with one another who's gonna get in. As the time is counting down, we're about to pull off, and finally they throw a girl in the van and we pull off. And, uh, and she had no idea where the hell they were going. And uh, that to me is the excitement and rush that I don't get as a filmmaker. I just got back from a movie shoot uh, a couple of days ago, and I love making movies, it's amazing. But it becomes monotonous and laborious on set. My first AD is here, probably still wanting to kill me from that last movie. <laughs> Because you're, you're there for 13 hours and you're, it's very scientific. You have to get these shots and do whatever. But with tension, it was fly, it was literally spur of the moment yeah. decisions that had to be made that would alter the rest of the event. And the energy is something that I can't even articulate. I, I, I helped write the movie and we're, we're, go, we're going through it. And it's just, it's just not the same, is it? And we're like, you know, we, we don't have any audience feedback. And it felt all of a sudden you just miss that. You just miss the fact that you're not creating with the audience. I'm going to go back to this idea of it being like the game, because when you're doing the ARG still, you mentioned earlier before how you wanted to stay away from it, you know, keep your names off of it. You went to great lengths about that, introducing like that fake creator character ended up showing up at like physical events at horror conventions in LA. Can you talk about that whole meta storyline? Sure. Um, basically, we were invited to a panel, and Darren, this is all to Darren's credit, you know, I, I'm a whore, so I just want to get my name out there everywhere, and Darren's like, no, 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 it's, it's the mystery. So we get invited to a, a panel, and all of a sudden we're like, well, how are we going to do this? And Darren goes, well, let's script it. And so we had people uh, come to a convention panel, and we had an entire group of people that were going to be um, interviewed about the tension experience. We had a host and every single one of them was actors, and then we planted actors inside the audience that disrupted it in a very classy Jerry Springer style, and everyone had no idea what was going on the entire time, and that was, I think part of the allure is you never quite knew where the fourth wall was gonna be, and when you found it, we kind of warped it a little well, bit. Well, I think that we became, all of us became characters in the game, and it was not something that we wanted to happen, but you know, because of the internet, you can't keep a secret for that long. And of course, start, correct, yeah. People started to have rumblings of, I had a, a friend call me, are you involved in the tension experience? And that happened about three months in. And so we had to start reverse roboting out, being like, what are we gonna do? If, they, if it comes out that it's us, it's gonna suck. And what'd I say? You're a character now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, we had to make ourselves characters. So in that panel at Scare LA, 
the guy, Ellis Gordon, basically was, was labeled to be a fraud and it was ha the, the whole presentation was hacked and they started revealing names. And they said, they're pawns, they're patsies. And it was showing our names and faces up there. Uh, Darren Bowsman is a pawn. Clint Sears is a pawn. Gordon Bijelonic is a patsy. They're not real. They're working for an Illuminati-like organization to take the fall. We scripted, we had real documents that you could find in the downtown public library from the Illuminati that was basically like, let these directors take the fall. And it was like, Bowsman's a hack. He hasn't right. made a good movie since Saw 3. Let him take the fall for and it's it. All again, it's, it's all again that the cult was trying to indoctrinate people and why not use us as the medium for it, to the point that when you came to the experience, when you came back your third time, sometimes you'd actually see these guys, these scary looking guys in suits, yelling at Darren and Clint in front of the video monitors because we weren't pulling off what they needed us to do. We were just their pawns and puppets. You could hack email accounts and literally find correspondence between the, the business suits um, that talking, was to, talking us. to us about do a better fucking job. <laughs> uh, no one's buying this shit anymore. <laughs> so we had to continually be on our feet at all times to keep up with the demands of the ARG. I, don't, I mean, again, it was a full-time job. Yeah. I have to say my, my personal favorite moment on that thread was when you guys had done an interview with a, uh, oh, a podcast called yeah. My Haunt Life, which later in the game showed up as a scripted interview. So those podcast creators thought that Darren and Clint had lied to them uh, and faked the entire thing months ago, which was awesome. <laughs> um, uh, so, okay, all this leads up to the immersive theater show, which was Ascension. Um, I'm very, very curious about your creative process in this, because this was a two-hour piece. You had, you know, 50-some actors. How do you go and break down and, you know, break the story and create what an experiential, you know, theater piece is going to be like that? To me, it was... T I'm going to give you a... I don't know if, has anyone here done Blackout? Anyone in the audience? Uh, Laura, my <laughs> uh, So um, I had heard about this thing called Blackout, and it all started from one moment that took place at Blackout where Blackout's an extreme theater event, and it's about 15 to 20 minutes, and they put you in an extreme situation, and it makes you uncomfortable. There's no way to go into it without being uncomfortable. And I can remember one that I did in New York with my brother, where they, they push you, you get in, and they throw a plastic bag over your head, and they yank it, and they get in your ear and say, submit immediately, and you have to drop to your knees, and they grab your hand, and they, and they, they so my hand's behind me, and I can feel them putting a gun in my hand and they put a gun in my hand, and then they push me into another room where there's a guy with a bullet. And then you see this guy grab my hand and put a bullet in the gun, and they throw me in another room where there's a girl who's chained up, and they're screaming, pull the fucking trigger, pull the fucking trigger. And like, I know it's theater, I know it's fake, but it was so disheartening and disturbing for me that I just broke down. I, I didn't know what to do, because it, it's so, you don't have time to process it. And I realized that I could do the same thing, but on a more narrative structure. That was just a scene that took place. There was no narrative to it. So when I talked to Clinton Gordon about it, I said, I want to do this, but as a story. I want this to be a two and a half hour movie that the participants get to walk into and they get to alter everything. If they want to save the girl, side with the villain, uh, one, they can do whatever they want, but give them that same visceral reaction that I had. Do I pull the trigger or not? And I think when you go through tension, there's so many questions like, should I have done this? Could I have done this? I wanted a two and a half hour journey of that. And that's how it started. Clint and I were just going to each room and saying, what do we want the people to feel too? I think that was a, a big thing that was, that was easy to learn from the beginning is that uh, if done correctly, everything in immersive <laughs> feels real. You don't bump like on uh, a movie. You don't bump and give that like, well, that dialogue was a little rough because my dialogue's always perfect. But you don't bump on it because you're there, it's a living, breathing person. And so then all of a sudden what we realized is, 
Well, we can take someone in this two-hour experience through not just fear, but every emotion, just, a, just every emotion possible. We can take them through beauty, regret. Um, everything in every room had kind of a different feel to it. Some were existential, some were reflective. And so what happened is when people were done, they were literally in a daze because they had been through so much of an emotional journey and it was so intense and you're just there and you're stripped down and it's hyper real. And when they were done, they would have, I would, I would, we would do Q&A for the beginning and I would ask them, I'm like, I would talk to them about what they liked and didn't like and they would be in a hypnotic daze. And it took me a while to realize what was going on. They just, almost like in shock, they couldn't quite come down from every experience they had. And, that's when I really knew we knew something, we had something, and that was important, just all the Seeing emotions. One, I don't think any of us are prepared for that. Seeing a third of the participants break down crying yeah. in the experience, and it sounds ridiculous, you're like, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's true, and we're talking like, like grown men breaking down weeping openly, because it's not scary. Nothing about the tension experience was scary. It's fucked up, it holds a mirror up to your face, and it makes you, like there was a scene where um, you're forced to hold a, another participant's hand, and stare at them, and strobe lights are going off, and there's smoke filling the room, and these two beautiful women are circling you, asking you questions. And, um, and it's, it's, it's emotional, and it fucks with you. They're running through an existential crisis of basically look at this person in front of you and realize that they're gonna die, and then they ask you very personal questions about how long will you exist, and will your children's children remember you? And, and it's so surreal at the time that you just can't help but go there. And I, I called it our emotional crisis room, but that was just one of them. <laughs> Uh, Sabrina, I'm really curious about you as a performer. You know, your character in particular became like the emotional focal point for everybody that was in like the long-term game. You know, when did you kind of first realize the, the degree to which people were investing emotionally in this experience and what did that just do to you as, a, as an actor? Well, I think when I first realized it was on the message boards because I was also, I mean, you I was a fan. I was obsessed. Yeah. I was not only a performer, I was also obsessed with this thing because I also didn't know Darren and um, and Clint both wouldn't tell me, like, this is what's going to happen, this is what the storyline is going to be. And half of the time I was terrified that I was going to get killed off, too. <laughs> so um, I was always on the message boards reading everything what they're saying, and then when I started reading about how they're writing, about my character, about Addison, and how, how they care for her, and it's so real the way they write about it because they're in this game. So reading like I want to save Addison I want to do this and this and like what if Addison what if we do this and then maybe it could help and it, it's just it was so crazy and so that's when I first realized it but then at the actual experience itself at Ascension we had this one scene that you were talking to me about just before as well where you would come into this room it's a red room and it's sand on the floor and it's all red and you would be let in hooded and then I take the hood off and the light goes on and it's really, I mean, it's dark, kind of dark, but the whole cast would be behind me. So like 40, 50 people would be behind me just with a blank face staring at you. And I'm in front of you just really, really close and asking you really, really personal questions. And I did not expect, I guess, how how honestly people would answer my questions. And sometimes it would leave me crying and the rest of the cast crying. And That question it, was usually a terrifying. climax for what we knew. Darren would pull, uh, we would talk, and we'd pull the climax for their story. So what is, yeah. after we knew that about them, and, and they'd been back twice, and they'd played the game, 
what is the thing that's going to make this person break and really go inside themselves? And that was the single sentence that you had to say, and you, yeah. you pulled it off so well that people just lost their mind. Yeah, they lost it in there. And then, so that made me lose it, right. too. Yeah. And how is it going back? I mean, you know, you guys talked about going back to making movies after this. You were in St. Agatha as well. How was it going back to regular acting on a movie set after playing, you know, these scenes with other people, with participants for so long? It's, I mean, it's just a lot different because you know what you're, the, the biggest difference is you know what's going to happen. You have the script, you know, Darren will tell you, you walk from here to here, you do this and this, and then, the, you know, you know exactly what's going to happen. And in Ascension, there was not one night, not one moment where I was comfortable like, I was comfortable, but not super comfortable. You were in the moment I never as knew much as what was going to happen, yeah. yeah. And I never, you know, I would get over the walkie, I would get Darren or somebody saying, oh, this and this just happened, you need to run into that room and, and change the storyline. And um, I never knew how the participants are going to react to me. So that's the biggest difference. It's just being in the moment way more than it is working on a movie where you just know exactly what's going to happen. Right, right. And I think it's, it's hard to underestimate just to the, the production design of the space and how you know, beautiful it was and how that brought people into the world. Um, I think we have a trailer. Do you want to show that? We have a trailer for Ascension to give you a better idea of what it was like inside the warehouse. Yeah, so this is a trailer that uh, we released when Ascension opened. So just give me one second to open that up. All right, if we can uh, cue it up over there. stuff. And that is, that's that Sabrina. is Sabrina singing. That's Sabrina singing. Uh, so yeah, the great, uh, it was very interesting because all of those characters you would see, um, you would spend time with, and all of this would kind of basically, you know, would go, it went on for months, you would see multiple, you know, come back multiple times, you'd see different things, and all of it ended uh, with a particular event that you guys called culmination or the end, where the, the overall storyline kind of concluded. I was wondering if you could talk about what went into that and what your thinking was about the, the, the final show of uh, Ascension. I think that we had grown so, like there's no way to describe the, the love affair that, that I think Clint, myself, and Sabrina and Gordon had with Tension. It was real for us. I mean, we really lived in the cult. We were the cult leaders. We, um, it was the, probably the most emotionally attached I've ever been to a project. And so we couldn't just end it. We couldn't just say the doors are closed and it's over. We had to end it and end it big. And so we invited the main participants back, and the, we basically had a tagline that went through all of Ascension, that it was only the active move forward. And we mean by that is only the people that actually went through numerous times, that participated in the ARG and made themselves a centerpiece were invited. And so we probably invited 100 people to the finale, and in the finale, it was a culmination of everyone's storyline that basically ended in a massacre. Um, where everyone was, was, you walk through the warehouse while this beautiful haunting rendition of a song of hers is playing, and you walk through and see every character that you'd come to know over the last year dead, mutilated, destroyed. And you walked through, you were led through by these girls that were covered in blood and then led into an auditorium where a final scene took place that was the season finale. It yeah, was the we still had a, a lot of open uh, narrative threads that people were interested in, and we needed to close those. And again, they see the massacre, but what's the way to upend expectations for Sabrina is that um, 
again, we broke the fourth wall a little bit, and she actually wound up driving off into the sunset. And, uh, but you were a broken character. That was, we had to, we couldn't end on a happy, happy note, but she got away, but she was completely broken down, and we also led up to maybe something in the future for the next steps. Well, yeah, we'll talk about the, the, the mysterious Illuminati uh, group behind, uh, behind the OO way. Talk a little bit about that, about the tension mythology. We're not allowed to, Brian, sorry. <laughs> um, the idea that Gordon, that I pitched Gordon originally, and I think where I got Gordon excited, was that I wanted to make a series of these um, called, the first one was called Tension, which was fear, and then I wanted to make Lust, which was sex, and I wanted to make Adrenaline, which is action, and I wanted to make Nefarious, which is more horror-based. And we needed a common thread in this universe, this world, and it was the OSDM, which is the nefarious Illuminati-like organization. The conspiracy uh, behind everything, basically. Yeah. yeah, and so the OSDM was a kind of puppet masters to the tension experience, and the OSDM is what's leading you into the next one of these that we're doing. Right, um, and uh, uh, I'm curious about, you know, moving forward, you've had this, you know, you had this very specific experience in tension when nobody really knew what it was. You kind of be under cover of darkness a little bit. Uh, you know, now you're doing this next one. How do you kind of, you know, bring it to life when audiences, you know, already familiar with what you do? And also, how do you scale it? Because hopefully you want these things to get bigger, you know. Um, so, like Gordon, Gordon. Tension is, is the universe that we created. Tension is, call it the Cirque du Soleil. When Cirque du Soleil was launched, it was started off with Mystere, and then O, and then Ka, and then Zumanity, and then they started doing it all over the world. They launched it in Vegas, actually Montreal, got it to Vegas, but it all started with one single IP. It started with that initial show, and Cirque du Soleil being the universe, and then they had all these other uh, components to it. So Tension is our universe. Tension Ascension was the first one that we launched with last year. This year, we're starting with tension, lust, and then tension, adrenaline, and then tension, nefarious, kind of following. As a business, we, we, we kind of looked at it, and instead of just doing a single one-off IP, how do we scale this? How do we move forward with this? And so by creating this world, we have VR opportunities, we have scripted opportunities, we have non-scripted, we have the movie component. So initially, when I met with Darren, he's like, hey, we're gonna go ahead and build these sets. We're gonna start off with the theatrical experience, but then we're gonna use that same set. We're gonna use it for the film, and then once we've gotten our revenue back from the ticket sales, we're gonna flip that, roll that over into the film. And then so when the film comes out, we're ready to launch the next experience, which is Tension Lust. And so initially, it was just the experiential component and then the film component. But after having a successful run sold out for three months, it's, it's the rest of Hollywood that came that responded to it that we did not, or we're not aware who came. And so from Amblin Entertainment to Legendary to Warner Brothers to Bunham and Murray, everyone was like, holy shit, you guys got something here. You can you know, explore the VR world, you can explore the scripted world, the non-scripted world. And so, so thinking forward, that's the vision, that's the plan on it, is to kind of roll it out on, on, a, on a bigger level with this being the launch pad to it. The one thing I'll say about Lust is, so for those that were not able to participate in the Tension Experience, you don't have to be in Los Angeles. In fact, a good percentage of our people are all over the United States and even world. People flew in from everywhere to, to participate in Ascension. We're starting a new one, and it's just starting now, called Lust, which it's sex. It's, it's people's desires. It's people's wants and their 
what they lust after. <clears throat> it will be dark, it will be nefarious, but I think that uh, we do have our work cut out for us because again, the mystery, I think, is what propelled tension. And so um, the same thing will be surrounded with lust. I, I think that, yeah, people know who we are at this point, but they have no idea where the fuck we're going with it. Yeah. And that's, that's exciting <clears throat> for us, is because I think, because you probably have an idea what you think lust is gonna be. And we're gonna do the opposite. Just get ready. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, one other point too, I, I, maybe this is a question for you, Clint. With, uh, you have like this fractured multi-platform narrative, right? You have the overarching uh, narrative, you have like these micro stories that people could play. You know, on the next one, what are you looking to explore? How are you looking to expand, you know, that? Sure, I think uh, now that we have the learning curve, and, and I think we learned so much about how to basically break story, I think what you'll find is that um, the story may not, and I, you know, I don't want to go too far, but basically um, the story will swirl and our world may not look as cohesive as it initially seems. And uh, so that's part of the thing that we realized, that we can go broader than we ever thought. And as long as we balance around a theme, we're pretty much allowed to do whatever we want, and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. That's all you can say about it. Yeah. Darren's like, <laughs> stop talking. You're going to give so secrets. No more questions about yeah. less than Okay. Um, uh, one thing, uh, you know, immersive theater as a scene is kind of like, you know, it's very, very vibrant. LA has a great scene. Lots of like small people coming up. Lots of people want to try this form. What would your advice be to the people who want to like get into immersive and haven't tried it yet? I can say for me, fuck everyone that tells you there's a rule book. There's not. Yeah. And I think that we met with some of the biggest people. Gordon and I sat down with meeting after meeting after meeting with people that told us what we couldn't do. Uh, we like your idea for tension, but you can't do this, 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 or this. And we met with the biggest guys out there, like the biggest guys in the ARG platform, the immersive platform. And after two months of hearing what you can't do, I just said to Gordon, fuck them all. I don't care what any of these people say. Let's just go do it. And we did it. And we did everything that we wanted to do. And we did everything they told us not to do. And we succeeded in doing it. What, what it comes down to is content. Yeah. We're, we're, we're not recreating the wheel. We're creating content. So content is always king. So it doesn't matter how we consume it, how we digest it, whether we're watching it on an iPhone, on an iPad, on an IMAX theater, whether you go to a Broadway show. I think what, what's unique and special about this, it, it's a disconnect. It, it really is the West world. You know, we have all this sensory overload with, with constant being plugged into the internet, online, with Facebook, social media, emails, text messages, where even if you go to a movie theater, movies used to be an escape. We would go to a movie theater to get lost in a fantasy for two hours. And I say used to be because it's gonna be used to be as long as, we're, if we're taking our phone in there, we're not present, we're not in the moment. We're in there responding to emails, we're responding to Facebook messages. But when you're in the experience, one of the things, the first thing we do is we take your cell phones. You cannot participate and be in the moment, be in this experience and get the true value out of this narrative and find these clues by being on your phone. And also the phone is a clut, a crutch. You kind of hold on to it like a life preserver. And so, so that's what made it really unique and compelling and special, like even Broadway. And I grew up in New York City and I grew up going to Broadway theater. You can sit in the front row, you can sit in the center, you can sit in the mezzanine, but at the end of the day, you're just sitting there watching this narrative for two hours as opposed to being a part of the narrative. And that's what's unique and that's what's different. And it's completely active as opposed to being passive. And, and I would just add one more thing is that even though it is ex extremely uh, interactive, narrative rules still apply to matter, no, no matter what you do you still have to follow basic narrative. Because if you give the audience everything that they think they want, 
Nobody wants that, it's boring. And so you have to guide them, you have to grab their curiosity, and then you have to surprise them. So I think a lot of times when we think interactive, we just think anything goes, but that's not exactly the case. You still have to guide them a little bit. And uh, if there's a choice A and a choice B, you better make sure that choice A is good and choice B is good, because it just always has to connect with the player. I think the biggest piece of advice, though, from going through this is you have to connect with the audience and you have to make them active and engaged. I think as a filmmaker, a lot of times I find myself talking at an audience and I'm like, oh, yeah, look at these images and look at this edit here and look at this crane shot here. With the tension experience and with immersive theater, with great immersive theater, the audience is piecing it together. The audience is the director. They're putting everything together. You're asking more of an audience member. You're saying, be active. Don't be passive here. And I think the best immersive theater demands the audience to be active. And so for me, it's about connecting with the audience and making them the narrator. They are the, they are the storyteller. We're giving you the playground and we're building the slides for you and we're building the jungle gyms for you. But in the very end, you're the one that has to put it together, not us. Sabrina, what about you? Do you want to do more immersive theater, either with Darren and Clint or, or not? Definitely not with Darren and Clint. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And once you start, I think you're hooked. I don't know one... I mean, I'm sure Teresa, she's, uh, she agrees to that. I don't think one actor of tension doesn't want to keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a huge community. I've never, seen the, um, I've never seen the crew and the actors so engaged and so excited and so uh, present and ready to go, and they're all just begging to, to fire up again. And that's because they had that interaction. It was as real, I think, for them as it was for the audience members. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There were real moments created. Yeah. And I will say this from the community side, that came through as well. The community of people that played this thing that I came into late in the game covering it um, are a vibrant family that are friends and, you know, and reach out and uh, kind of support each other in a really, really you know, profound way. Um, does anybody, one uh, one last thing on the ARG real quick. Oh, yeah. We, we, we ran that thing for nine months. People were participating from all over the world, from London to Chicago to Texas to San Francisco. And, and one of the guys that's been participating from the beginning who was intimately involved in this whole world that we recreated, he just couldn't afford to fly from London when we opened. So after running for nine months, and he posted on there, wow, guys, it's like I've been part of this journey with you for nine months. I just can't afford to get to, to Los Angeles to participate. So everyone rallied together, and from $5 to $10 to $50, the whole community was loyal, and they got together, and they basically funded his entire trip so that he can come and participate on our opening night, which I thought was fascinating. And, and speaks to the immersive community, it's, uh, the immersive experience itself. You can't find that brand attachment with a movie. You can't find that brand attachment with a TV show. These people are living, breathing. It's part of their lifestyle after a while, and they'll give anything for it. Just imagine your favorite TV show, whatever it is, Sopranos, and Tony Soprano or James Gandolfini comes and sits on the couch and, and does a scene for you in your home, in yep. your space. And that's all the tension was. We, we left the stage and we went into your universe. Everything took place in your office, your home, your car for nine months. And then we invited you to our home after that. And I think to me that was, was just exciting, watching Sabrina show up to doors of people's houses and knock on their door, and they're like, what the fuck, oh my God. And then we would just go inside and we would screw their life up and then we'd leave. <laughs> it still makes me happy. <laughs> That's the, the true motivation of yeah. behind tension, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, anyway, we have some time for questions. Does anybody have any, there's actually a microphone right there, uh, folks want to line up. Oh. So I'm curious about the business model. I mean, I didn't get the chance to 
to experience this, right? So how did you fund it? If you, if you can share this, how did you fund it? Like, what did it cost to participate? Did you make, did you make a profit? I mean, well, you, you it, talked it, a little bit about was, what the... Uh, I'm going to answer that for you. It was uh, a high level, call it a hybrid. It was an expensive prototype to prove the concept. Cirque du Soleil tickets are not cheap. Broadway tickets are not cheap. Broadway tickets run you two, three, four, five, six hundred dollars. Uh, there's tickets now on uh, that are nine hundred dollars for sold out shows. We were one twenty five. We were one twenty five a ticket, and compared to the other immersive theater experiences, typically run thirty minutes, forty five minutes, an hour. They're in the same range. We ran a full two hours, and then the scope, the scale of our production. It was you know forty five thousand square foot warehouse, twenty eight built set pieces with forty seven actors doing six shows a night working overtime. So how do you scale this? Again, it's it's the Cirque du Soleil model. It's it's pay to play. You're coming in, you're buying your tickets, and we can do Cirque du Soleil. we can do tension experience in New York City. We can do it in Miami. You know, with New York City, you have Broadway. You have hundreds and hundreds of Broadway shows, off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway. And in Los Angeles, the entertainment capital of the world, where we have all these actors that are working in between jobs, you have a great opportunity. There's a lot of warehouses that can be built out into these set pieces where you don't have to sign a three-year, five-year lease. You do a pop-up. You see if you have something. It comes down to the narrative again. It comes down to your storytelling. It's either you have something or you don't. But... That's not the nine-month part, right? No. So, so, so we ran we in charge. That's quality of marketing. Well, we spent... That was one of the unique things. We, we started getting covered by everyone. They thought J.J. Abrams was behind this. They thought Jason Blum was I am the poor man's J.J. Abrams. I know that all the time. But, but the point was, they said, how are these people doing these events, doing these get-togethers, and they're not charging anyone anything. So for nine months, we were building a community. We were building it from a grassroots level. And I said, Darren, why are we doing this shit for free? Why are we not? He goes, we need to make it authentic. We need to grow it from a level where people see what it is. Because it was our first time to bat in this world. And so to me, it was you have to spend the money in marketing to let people know you have something. Just same thing with... And so we called it the marketing budget, and we were doing this once a month, twice a month, for the nine months. And again, we were doing it in New York, we were doing it in Kansas, we were doing it in LA, to make it look a lot bigger, and then that's why people were playing on a global level in the ARG component. Uh, really quick, I'm gonna shamelessly promote, because you asked how we make money. <laughs> One of the things, uh, this week on Monday, a book that we wrote on this, uh, it's got great essays in it, like Neil Patrick Harris writes the foreword for it, Joe Russo of uh, the Avengers writes uh, the afterwards. Uh, it's a 300-page book on the tension experience full of thousands of pictures and essays and testimonials and behind the scenes, and it breaks down how we did it. Um, again, thetensionexperience.com, you can see that. It's a hardcover, beautiful book that, that gives you an encyclopedia of more shit that you don't want to know about, it's in there, about how we did it. <laughs> next, so, question. next question. Uh, yeah, Los Angeles is a progressive artistic city and it's a perfect place to do this sort of thing. Could this be, be reproduced in, in other smaller cities? And are a lot of the customer participants, were they uh, aspiring actors and perhaps this was their uh, way for them to, to also act as well as the actors? They're everywhere now, and in fact, the Russo brothers uh, just opened one in Cincinnati, or opening one right now in Cincinnati. Uh, they're in Florida. They're, they're in Kansas. They are everywhere. I, I think that ours might be, 
just from the people we had involved in it, and I think that because we were able to have a really great publicist to get us the promotion, to get us out there, but they're everywhere. You just look for them. I mean, again, and, and the more you start to kind of go down the rabbit hole of immersive theaters, you, you do find them. And I hope that, in my mind, I've never been more engaged by a narrative piece than when I go to an immersive project, because again, I can touch and breathe and smell and taste the same thing the actors are doing. And so it stays with me so much longer. And it's like how you saw escape rooms pop up. Escape rooms weren't here 20 years ago, and now they're, they're like Starbucks. Yeah. Like, they're, they're everywhere. And I think that you're gonna see immersive theater in the same kind of way that more troops are gonna start picking up. You don't need a 45,000 foot warehouse to do one. Brian and I were just talking about another one um, that uh, the Speakeasy Society, it's one in Los Angeles. They do them in backyards of people's houses. There was one called Fear is What We Learned Here uh, that they do it in a garage. And they're amazing, they're, they're amazing. Blackouts are in little small rooms, but they're amazing. And so I think that we had a, probably a, a very big one in size of scope, but they're everywhere, you just gotta look them out. Regarding the audience, uh, the audience was everything. We had a lot of industry people, because obviously we're in Los Angeles. A lot of actors, obviously, because we're in Los Angeles. I don't think there was a type. Um, no, but the, the yeah. age range went everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, we had 70-year-old people, and we, we had a 74-year-old woman coming through it, um, and then we have like young hipster kids. It, yeah. We really went from the entire gamut of, of that. Hi, so um, what I find most amazing about what you guys have been talking about is the way that when you get to the live performance element of this, you still have these sweeping adaptations and these huge changes that you're able to make uh, based off of what is happening with the audience. And my question is, how does that affect the production environment? And you, you know, I'm you gonna, have things like the... I'm going to give credit to Darren as a director because instinctually he just goes and he would see something happening or he would know someone was coming and he just bugged the shit out of me all the time. <laughs> and would call me last minute. We were getting calls at 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, I need a scene. And you would, you would live course correct on site. Uh, it was just natural instinct. And having, you know, such a, a, he's a big film director, having him live directing your story there was how we were able to execute that. It's My question is sort of to the point of um, the production design and the technical elements. Did you find so those were... This is a cool, fun fact about it, about, again, which can be found in the book that uh, we talk about. But, so we would do things, I wanted to keep it fresh, and I didn't want people to get bored. And I also knew that people like Brian Bishop would come through this thing four or five times. I wanted to make it so after the fifth time, he wasn't like, what the hell, this is boring, I've seen this. So we did things, pop-up rooms, and we would do them, and they'd be random. So one night, we would rehearse a scene, and it would only be that one night. And the actor would only come in for that one day. And so six people would only see that, and it would be closed down, never to be seen again. We did it every week that we were open. We would have a specialty scene or room that was opened up that was only open for then. It was destroyed, taken down, and never to be done again. And that sounds like a lot, but then those people go and they tell other people. And all of a sudden, you actually have a world that never, or that is constantly changing. There's not one thing. And so there's, there's value in that. Um, we also would... Uh, is, I think we mentioned, we keep dossiers on everyone that came through. So we would basically know a lot about you when you came through the event. And we would hand select you know, the people that we knew were in it from the beginning, the people that we knew that, that participated in the ARG, and we'd always try to do something special for them. And so one of the example of one that we did is someone bought a ticket to come back for the third time. And we, we would call him the, the morning of the event and said, do not come to the warehouse, and we'd give him another address. And he would show up in that address, and there would be a, there would be a guy in like a Rolls Royce sitting there, and one of the actors, and he said, get in. 
And he would get in the car and he took them off-site and did an entire event that was not at the warehouse but off-site the warehouse. And so by the time that that, that participant was done, we would close that event down never to be done again. So we, we tried to keep it fresh consistently by doing things like that. It was a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> not, also for my wife that had to deal with that. I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was rough. But it was also extremely it was awesome because, again, when do you get to do things like that? Uh, hi, so uh, I'm from Carnegie Mellon and we're, I'm on a track where we design like location-based interactive experiences. And uh, usually when we pitch an idea that's horror-related, it usually gets dismissed as like easy or not fulfilling enough. And they want us to do something more like on the happy side. So I want to know uh, from you guys, what metrics do you consider when you're designing an experience, a horror experience for a guest? And what kind of a reaction do you expect when you're going through that process? Um, from a horror, <laughs> you never can guess how people are going to react or what your thing's going to do. And this is not an exaggeration. I I'm not making this up. But we had people poop themselves. Um, numerous people vomit uh, themselves. Um, it was a bodily fluid surprise there, there in was. a certain room. Um, <laughs> and you're, when you're planning this, you have no idea. That was never our intention. Because again, there's nothing scary about the tension experience. It's your own fear in your head. Like, we would put you in environments that your mind would do everything. It was a mind fuck, yeah. And so, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's a hard thing. Uh, Clint, how would you answer that? <laughs> uh, basically, basically, you just throw, you throw your best at them. You see how they uh, react, and then you course correct so that it's better the second time, it's better the third time, and it's better the fourth time. Does that answer that? Yeah, pretty cool. much. Everything, you can't, I never know what scares people, and I think that to me, your own mind scares you more than anything. So we would set, we would like set the stage to let their mind do most of the work for them. We would, the lines would be ambiguous enough that it can mean numerous things how you interpreted it to be. So I think that the horror and the tension experience, because a lot of people will call it a haunted house, they'll say it's like that. It was your own, what you were bringing into it. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry, I have a quick follow-up. So. Uh, uh, last semester, we were on this project where we were trying to design an escape room, which purely depends on your sense of smell and hearing rather than sight. We literally blindfolded people and we uh, ran tests where they would like feel through the walls and you know that's how they get around the room and everything. And we found that it was inadvertently scary. Like even though we didn't mean it to be, we just wanted them to find sure. objects and then you know open a door somewhere. Sure. So like, is this kind of inadvertent? You know. Like something you didn't plan, something a part of your process that always happens? Um, I, I think, again, it was just throwing everything we could at them. And we did have, we, uh, we had senses rooms where we removed their, we uh, changed uh, what they taste and, and sight, smell, and everything. And yeah, it was always, uh, the more you can throw people off their comfort level, the more they're in the yeah. moment and the more they believe it and the more they're just engaged in the story. Okay. Um, do we want to get a few more questions in? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. First of all, it's a great opportunity to be able to ask a question to Director Saw. Um, <laughs> and so basically my question is like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? <laughs> you haven't met more, my wife. More, She's sitting right here. Just talk to her for a minute. <laughs> but more to the point. It's not just titillation, right? There's some kind of education thing going on. I mean, if you look at Hostel, that's just like torture porn. Saw is more than that. So I know that when you talk about education, you can't necessarily tell people what they're, you're trying to teach them. But I'm just curious if you can talk about that at all. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, 
What was the, I'm sorry. It, I, I think we're probably talking about themes here. So we definitely had themes with everything that we did. Our it, theme for tension was... To, well, yeah. To it, be in the moment. It, to right? be in the moment. So if you look at the Saw films, the Saw films, a lot of some people will look at the Saw films and say they're torture porn, they're gory, they're whatever. They were a message in those movies. The, when I directed Saw 2, both of my parents in the same year came down with cancer. My dad had leukemia, my mother had breast cancer. And so for me, what attached me to the Saw film was here is a character, J J John Kramer, that was dying of cancer. And he's looking around at all these pieces of shit that are walking around that are taking their life for granted. And yet his life, who he wanted to live and he wanted to have this wife and this kid, he couldn't because he was dealing with this disease that was, that was overtaking his body. So for me, I hung on to the idea that it was more than about torture. It was about the reason behind the torture. I think that every movie that I go into, there's a reason behind the madness. It's not just vicious. It's not just exploitative. And I think with tension, um, the idea behind tension, the theme behind it was, I am a zombie. I am a fucking zombie. I walk around with my phone glued to my fucking face. I'm on Instagram constantly. I'm checking my phone constantly. And I stopped being there. I have a two-year-old son that I watched grow up through a fucking cell phone as opposed to being there. So I called Clint. I said, I'm disgusted with who I'm becoming. I'm disgusted with who we are becoming. Yeah. When was the last time you went to a restaurant and actually sat there and talked to the person? You don't. The entire you, time. You tweet. You Facebook. You Insta story. And I know because I did it this morning at breakfast. Look at my <laughs> fucking Insta feed. You can see everything that I ate. That is, that is disgusting. And so tension was about put down your cell phones, put down your shit, and be in the moment. Find the present. humanity in real life again. And, and so, yes, people pissed themselves, but there was a reason behind it. No, there was a reason behind the whole thing. And the thing was about be in the moment, be present. And the storyline dealt with data mining. The whole storyline of tension was about data mining. And what were we doing at the exact same time? We because were data that's mining. why we're on our fucking social media is because they are trying to data mine us and we forget that. And so we made a nefarious organization, throw it out in your face and make you question, why are you not talking to the person in fucking front of you? And uh, we just did it to the extreme. Last question. Yeah, I think we have one last question over here. Well, hello. Um, so I'm an improviser here in town, and I did a workshop um, a couple months ago uh, with this guy, Jeff Worth, who does a lot of interactive theater um, in New York. And one of the things that blew me away was uh, the depth and specificity in helping guide audiences through a certain experience. Um, and so I was wondering if, I'm sure you cover this a lot more in your book, um, but I was wondering if you could maybe touch a little bit on um, how you prepped for the, the multitude of responses that audience members could have, um, both in your narrative prep as you're, as you're writing scenes, and then also prepping the actors um, who I assume are, are sort of making calls in the moment as well. Uh, chapter three in the Tension Experience book that hits stores on Monday. Perfect, I'll go read it. Uh, yeah. No, um, you know, I, I still don't know how the hell we did it, and I still don't know how the hell it worked. And I think that it, it was, you don't realize when you're in the middle of it what's actually happening. I think that it, it was a miracle in some extent. You that need to give yourself more credit. It's your director instincts about where to put focus, and we know what narrative. It's just like a magic show. We look over here where we're misdirecting over here. And we talked about magic a lot when we did this. And you need to give yourself more credit because this guy naturally, instinctually knows where to have the audience look. If we do this, they're going to look here. And if you have an actor being too big or you have a storyline too big over here, you got to cut that down. So there are ways to naturally direct the audience. I and think that Clint always says this, is that it, we, we find out what doesn't work and we change it. The thing which was great about tension, we had a wall of monitors. So every, I was there every day except two days of the three and a half month run 
Um, and you're sitting in front, so I would sit in front of uh, all of these monitors, like uh, there's tons of monitors of every room, and sometimes different angles, and everyone had headpieces in. And so you're seeing something that doesn't work, and sometimes we failed miserably. There was, in the first week that we opened, there was a couple of scenes that just were misfiring right and, and left. And when you right. do, you make that on purpose to the audience. Like, that was meant to happen, and then you didn't fail. But we would look at it, and so I'm watching it, and I'm like, this doesn't work, we need to correct this tonight. And so we would stay after, and we'd stay after an hour, and we'd try to fix it and figure it out. And so by the second and third night, we were starting to work out kinks. And you would, you would see that. I think the first couple of shows kind of were, not I don't want to say a disaster, but they were unfocused. We, we, had a, we had a, here's a quick example. We had a room that didn't work. We tried everything in the world. We just couldn't get this room to room. work. The mirror room. And so Darren's like, we've got to try something new. We've got to try something new. Well, guess what? It's not working, so why don't we make it not work? And all of a sudden, the police come in, and they're busting down the place, and they're saying, these guys are real. Did you swallow anything? Did you swallow anything? And they're on a radio, right? And they're saying, we don't know who these people are. We don't know why they're doing it. We've looked into everything. Nothing makes sense, and he's got a gun, and it's just freaking out. And so that's part of it. You just work with what you have, and when it's not working, make it not work spectacularly. Mm -hmm. I based an entire career on that. <laughs> um, and can I ask Sabrina, for you, um, working directly with audiences so closely, was that exciting? Was that scary? Was it both? Um, it was all of those things. Um, but you know what helped um, with, with your question, actually? It's all of the actors. I don't think it would have worked as well if not all of the actors were so invested. They all loved the story immediately, so they were all on the message boards. It wasn't just me who was in the ARG, it was everybody that came on board in Ascension, they were all on the message boards, and that helps, because then you, we were all living in the same world, and it didn't really matter if something went wrong, because we, we were really living there, so it didn't, we, we could just react to that, and if I would see some, some other actor react in a certain way, to something that went wrong, I would immediately notice that and think, oh, I see where they're going with that. So it was all about being able to communicate with the other actors too. That was so important to me as well. Because not, it was a lot of us on, on headphones, um, on, what is it called, earpieces? But not everybody. So we really had to make sure to communicate. And there were, yeah, I mean, there were awkward moments where for a moment you're like, oh, I don't what are we going to do now? <laughs> it helps but, when uh, your lead has a photographic memory and can memorize lines in literally like five minutes uh, sometimes. Well, I'll give you a, yeah. quick, a quick story about Sabrina, which is awesome, is that we had, um, we're two days away from opening, three days from opening, and the big finale sequence was, was delivered by someone else, uh, a, a character, and it wasn't working. It just wasn't engaging. It wasn't energetic. And Sabrina walks up to me. It may have been the day before we opened. It was, I think it was, the, it was day the day. It was the day before we opened. She goes, I can do that. And it was like a seven-page model. That sounds horrible. I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> I got this. But she said, why don't, I do, why don't I do it? And I was like, it's seven pages. And she's like, I'll do it. And she literally goes home, and the next day she came and delivered the seven-page monologue. And which, it clicked. And it clicked, so and it much, hit immediately. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, you have to have great talent to pull off these things, because I think yeah. that someone reading lines isn't going to work. It's, it's, they have to embody and become the characters. Teresa, Sabrina, every single actor that we had were the characters. For those three months that we were open, they were those people, 100%. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. You guys made something with a lot of depth. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Everybody, thanks for coming. Gordon Bijelanek, Clint Sears, Sabrina Kern, and Darren Lindbazman of the Tension Experience. Thank you very much for having us. Thank, Thank you. Thank you.
For more on immersive entertainment and the future of storytelling, please visit TheVerge.com, or you can find me on Twitter at BC Bishop. Today's music from The Tension Experience by Joseph Bashara. This has been Brian Bishop for Verge Extras. Thanks for listening.